Great. Well, we're going to carry on tonight with the series we're doing on how you answer questions that people ask about Christianity. There aren't actually that many. There was a great man in the 1960s called Paul Little, Dr. Paul Little. He wrote a book about how to give away your faith. He was an American who worked with students in Eastern Europe, and actually that's where he died, quite young in life, in a car crash somewhere in Poland. But before he died, he'd written this book in which he, he gave the fruit of having shared his faith and ideas about Jesus with students, literally thousands of them, at universities all over America and in Europe. And he said, you know, actually, non-Christians' minds can be quite boring <laughs> because they come up with the same questions again and again and again. And I've often found that, you know, I've been on a university mission or something like that, and somebody said, I've got a brilliant objection. Oh, you'd better sit down before I tell you this, because this is out of your faith. And I say, okay, come on, tell me, tell me. And he, so he comes out with it, and you think, oh yeah, number three again. <laughs> because actually, said Paul Little, there are only about seven or eight basic questions that people ask. Now, um, I think our list has changed quite a bit, especially in the last 10 years, from the list that he had back in the 1960s. But it is, it is true. The same kind of questions will come up again and again. And it's important as Christians that we have an answer for those basic things. So this year, on the weeks I'm here, we're trying to work through some of the most basic questions that people ask and just give some kind of answers to them. And um, as you probably know, we're doing this in a two-part work. Um, uh, the, the, the week I'm here at the end of the month will be something which uses multimedia and all sorts of stuff. We hope, if we can make the thing work, I'm going to plug it in again, Richard. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but we'll do it. Whoops. That's making a bit of a noise. Yeah, let's... Uh, it's not going to work for us. All right, okay, no, I, I don't want to. No, let's, let's, let's forget that for tonight. We don't need it tonight anyhow, because that's just the first, the, the, the first of the two series. Last week we talked uh, about the big question that lots of people are asking at the moment, about if there is a God of love, how come there is so much suffering in the world? And uh, we're going to continue with, with that tonight. We, we sort of looked at it a little bit last week, but tonight I want to do a little bit more work uh, for Christians about, well, how do you actually explain this to people? How do you break it down? How do you use the Bible? And are there some things you can remember that are quite easy to remember that would give you a start in a conversation? It won't do the whole conversation for you. It's not a full answer, but it will get you going. <laughs> and uh, it's important to have a, a, an answer to lots of things because many, often Christians don't. I remember once watching a, a Sunday morning TV programme, one of the trendy religious programmes they used to have on when they still bothered having religion on TV. And uh, uh, there was a, a, a trendy young guy with a microphone standing in front of an altar with a bishop in all of his regalia. And he was, he was putting up that question really well and saying, listen, look at all the problems that are going on in the world. Look at all the difficulties. Look at the way that people are suddenly struck by all sorts of dreadful diseases. Look at the way in which babies are stillborn. All the heartbreak there is in the world. How can there be a God of love in a world like this? And I always remember the bishop just sat down on the steps of the altars to show how trendy he was and then said, well, you know, we must just have faith. And I thought, oh, that's no answer to anything. You need to have good reasons. And uh, Peter said to Christians he was writing to in his first letter, always be ready with a reason for the hope that's in you. So we're looking at this question. Um, if there's a God, why is the world full of suffering? And last week, we, we came to these conclusions at the end, or at least I did. You, yeah, it's up to you what you think. First, there could well be a God even in this haphazard universe. The universe is full of a mixture of good things and bad things. 
But it doesn't look as if it just came from nowhere. All that modern science is discovering is pointing in the direction of design and order in the universe. The chance of human life emerging anywhere, let alone here, was vanishingly small. So either we are the most incredible coincidence in the whole of creation, or else somebody designed it, somebody planned it. And if there's a God who designed it, was he a good God or a bad God? And our second conclusion last week was, well, he could well be a being of incredible love, care, and generosity. Because if, if God is an evil God, a sadistic God, who loves the suffering, loves war, loves disease, loves all of the things that oppress people, then, then you've got a hard job explaining why there is so much joy in life, why human beings aren't throwing themselves off the cliffs all the time like lemmings just to get away from the place. Why is there joy? Why is there purpose in life? Why do we feel good about waking up in the morning, sometimes anyway, um, if, if the world is just a horrible place? And so God could well be that kind of being. But the third thing was this. You'll never know him until you reach out to him and invite him to be part of your life. So we can present reasons that are signposts that push people in the direction that they need to go and say to them, look, try it out. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You can find him for yourself if you want to. I can tell you, but I can't convince you. Only when you experience him will you know for sure. So last week we talked about the, 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 the questions that people come up with, saying that we live in a world of evil and sorrow. So either if God is good, he's powerless, or if God is powerful, he's evil. But both of those things rest on big assumptions. If God is good, he is powerless. That assumes that God can do anything. And God can't. Because he's given us a certain amount of freedom, hasn't he, to do, do things within his universe, to make choices. And those choices can affect our lives, and they can affect other people's lives. And if God has given us freedom to do that, he can't suddenly take it away. He can't say, whoops, there's somebody going to commit suicide, I'll just uh, stop him, I'll freeze him, taser him until he stops. He can't, you can't do that. People have the freedom to do things in God's creation and our freedom to be creative, to make our own choices, to do stuff that we choose to do is one of the biggest things about human life. We're not just ruled by our instincts. We're not robots. We're not machines. We can make real choices. But the cost of that, where God is concerned, is he's no longer in control of those areas where he's given us the, the freedom. God can't do anything if he's given that power to somebody else. And second, if God is powerful, people sometimes say, he's got to be evil. <laughs> and we said last week as well, you remember, there was uh, an assumption behind that question as, as well. And that assumes that this is the kind of world that God likes it to be. That God created the world to be this way, with a mixture of good and evil. And as we saw last week, there are passages in the Bible, and we'll be coming back to them later on today. Uh, by the way, no Bible reading at the start of this, because we'll be looking at lots of Bible passages in a bit. Okay? But uh, um, if you look at the Bible, you find there are passages that, that, that make it clear, this is not the way that God ever planned his creation to be. And creation is not working properly. It's working the, the, the seasons come round every year. The sun rises in the east and goes down in the west. There's snow and rain and all sorts of stuff going on. The crops grow year by year. Lots of system that God designed are working. But the whole thing is blighted by the fact that human sin, human wrongdoing, has hijacked the planet, taking it out of the control of God. Uh, as far as we can see anyhow and, 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 and therefore all sorts of things happen which were never his plan for the planet the great thing is that God is still sovereign 
and that uh, his will is done through everything that happens. But that's another thing we'll get to. Anyway, if you're being asked this question, why does God allow evil if there is a good God? God can't believe in a God that would let these things go on. Why does he just strike? Why didn't he strike Adolf Hitler dead, for example? Why didn't he stop Putin in his tracks? Why doesn't God do something? Well, there can be various reasons that people ask this question. And I think as a Christian, you've got to be sensitive. And you've got to be fine-tuned to why they're asking it. There are people who are asking because they're genuinely curious. They hear all these Christians going on in a relationship with Jesus, with knowing God's love. And sometimes it can be a very sustaining thing for them to have. It takes them through all sorts of problems that make other people crack up. And they carry on believing that there is a God of love. How can they do it? And there are people who are genuinely curious and just want to understand, why are you so sure when I'm not? But there are other people who just want to mock you. <laughs> and this is people like, for instance, Stephen Fry, Christopher Hitchens when he was alive, and others who just believe that the whole Christianity thing is totally ridiculous. So they ask this question because it's a good way of knocking Christians over. And... Uh, Sure enough, right this week, I was reading a book um, which uh, I've just bought, a very interesting one published by Oxford University Press, written by a professor in America, and it's about why people believe things that are just not true. <laughs> and there's a whole chapter on religion. And the other chapters up to that point have been pretty sensible. I was learning a lot from this book. I thought, I'd be really curious to see how this guy talks about uh, religion and faith and uh, how it's... Uh, uh, possible to believe the wrong things because, you know, we all want to believe the right things. And I was so disappointed because all he, he says in the chapter basically, well, you can't really believe in a God in the world like this. Why is it that we've got millions of religious believers all over the world? Basically, it's stupid. I thought, oh, dear me. You've just gone for the easy option. And this is the easy option, isn't it? We're all aware, all of us, everybody, wherever you live, we're all aware that there is trouble in the world, that the world is in a mess. And the easy thing to do is, is point to that and say, there you are then, there can't possibly be a God. So this is a number one reach-off-the-shelf answer uh, for people who just want to spar with you, just want to mock you. However, not everybody's like that. And the third th thing, and one of the most common reasons for people asking this question is because they have suffered themselves. Somebody close to them has died. They've had a big shake-up in their lives. Something has happened that they never thought would happen. They've been affected by the sorrow of people they know to whom nasty, nasty things have happened. They've taken a walk through a graveyard and just seen how many stories of human heartbreak there are there. And they, 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 because of their own suffering, they can't quite forgive God for allowing those things to happen. So you've got to be aware of why people are asking the question. And I think if they're genuinely curious, the first thing to do is don't rush things. It's a big question. Take your time. Explore it in depth. Just don't say, well, I've got three answers to that question. Number one, number two, number three. Were you listening? Don't rush it. It can sometimes take people a long time if they really can't understand why you would believe in a God of love. It get, takes time for them to see the world the way you see it. And as you explain your reasoning, then it can take a while before they grasp onto the possibility that you're opening up to them. So take your time. Don't be in a hurry to say, oh, well, it's quite easy. Of course, it's God love. One, two, three. <laughs> it isn't that easy. If they just want to mock, well, what's the answer to that? I think, don't waste your time. <laughs> Do say something. Say something that's going to stick in their mind. Say something that's going to give them something to think about. But don't spend ages just arguing the toss 
with people who really aren't that bothered. They just want something to fight about. And uh, there's a verse in the Bible, isn't it? It says, don't cast your pearls before swine in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's important, isn't it? It's so easy to waste lots of time just arguing with somebody who's not really listening to what you're saying and all that you're doing and all that you're coming up with is getting more funny stories to tell his friends later and hardening his mind against the truth as it is. Don't waste your time. Sometimes people aren't ready for what you've got to say. And all you've got to do, I think, is say something <laughs> that might well stick in their mind for later and leave it at that. And third, if people have suffered themselves. Now, this is where it gets really difficult, isn't it? Because these people do not want a kind of philosophical explanation, a theodicy, an explanation of how evil fits into God's universe. They want something that helps them stop hurting. So I think the important rule here is don't ignore their own story. Listen to what they're telling you first. And it may well be that you're able gently to suggest, well, maybe some of these things happened because of this or that, or one of your reasons. Maybe you'll just have to do something completely different. Just listen to them. Because often people who've got that sort of pent-up anger against God within them just need somebody to talk to. And I've often found in a situation like that, uh, at the end, I've, I've not explained anything about God, but I've just said, listen, I know you don't believe, but I do, so would you mind if I go away and pray for you? And sometimes they said, will you pray for me right now? You don't believe in God. Why would you want me to? To somebody that you don't even believe in. But they want you to. Because really it's the emotional hurt that needs to be unpacked first before they're ready to listen to anything on an intellectual kind of level. So, what I'm saying is, it's no one answer to everybody. And you have to be careful, no matter what you're geared with, um, that you're being appropriate to the situation and answering the questions they're asking rather than the question you wish they were asking. So... Let's ask a, a question. Uh, three things I want to say tonight. First of all, how do you use the Bible? What bits of the Bible are most important in answering this question? And then second, what are the three things that you might want to hold in your mind as reasons you could use in a conversation? And then third, I just want to talk about how you turn the whole thing around so that you're asking them questions instead of them asking you questions. But we'll get there before half past. Let's just see where we're going with this. What key Bible passages should you know? I think there are about five. You don't need to have them in your head. You can always put them on your phone or write them in your Bible if you carry it around with you or whatever and have them ready. And uh, nobody's going to mind if you say, ah, oh, yeah, that's a really good question. There are some passages in the Bible that, uh, that help with that one. I just wrote some down here. Let me just look it up for you. Nobody's going to mind. You see that you've taken that amount of care and preparation to answer the question. So you don't need to memorize this stuff, okay? I'm not asking the impossible here. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 to 6 is one. Ecclesiastes is a book we've quoted a couple of times already. It's a book that takes a very realistic view of what life is about. And chapter 9, I think, is important. Job 42. We'll talk about that in a moment too. But you know the story of Job. He was a man who had all the disasters and misfortunes you could imagine in the world. And in his book, he keeps on saying all the way through, if only I could stand before God, if I could question him, if I could interrogate him, put him in the dock, then we'll get some real answers. And he's got three friends who come along with answers which are pretty lame. You know, I'm not interested. That's not right. I don't accept that. And the fourth guy who comes in to try and help him, he's not that good either. And then God appears at the end of the book. <laughs> and uh, we'll see in a moment how all of that turns out. Uh, third, is chapter 10. Uh, and that's where Jesus talks about falling off branches. We'll have a look at that one in a minute. 
John chapter 9 is when Jesus and his disciples see someone who is going through a personal disaster. He was born with no eyesight. And the disciples say, okay, so whose fault is this? Important question. And then the final passage is one we've already looked at as well, Romans 8, 18 to 23. And I think for different reasons, those five passages are key passages to show to anybody who's asking this question. I'll tell you what, you won't use them all, of course, in one. There's no neat reason to say, now we're going to do a five-part Bible study, and I will take you right through the Bible, so you'll be doing nothing for the next couple of hours. You can't do that with people, but you can use maybe just one of these passages to highlight a point that's appropriate. And as I said last time, you know, uh, don't worry about letting people look at the Bible with you. Because generally, people want to do that. It's not the case that if you get your Bible out and open it, they'll say, oh, Bible basher alert, run, run, run. That doesn't happen. Most people nowadays are quite curious about the Bible, but they don't know how to read it. And one of the most interesting things that's happening in evangelism at the moment, and one of the most productive is uh, an initiative to get Christians trained to go through the Gospel of John <laughs> with a non-Christian. I think it's a brilliant idea. You know how alpha courses and things like that used to be all the rage? I used to promote those kind of courses, run them myself at Belmont Chapel. They were great for people who had this kind of curiosity for a while. But, you know, to join an alpha group or something like that, you have to be willing to come into a room with a bunch of people you've never met before, some of them not Christians, some of them definitely convinced Christians, and have to come for about 10 sessions. It's difficult to get out, make your excuses and leave. That's not so easy because everybody's looking at you. Whereas if your Christian friend just says to you, you know what, we could meet at Costa and just have a coffee and have a look at the Bible together. What do you think? Just you and me. I'll take, I'll take you through what it says. And you, it's amazing how many people say, yeah, all right, I'll do that. Because it's just you and your friend. And, you know, your friend is, 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 is not somebody you need to be embarrassed with. And if you, you, you say after five minutes, well, thanks, but no thanks. No, I don't really want to do any more of this. It's boring me to death. You can do that and you can leave and you'll still be friends. You're at Costa or somewhere like that, Starbucks, wherever you prefer. And uh, um, that's a public place. It's not a religious place at all. You can walk out of it any time you want. And so many people who were turning down invitations to go to alpha groups are accepting invitations just to look at the Bible with a further. There is a real curiosity about what the Bible really says, and uh, we need to be tapping into that. Anyway, that's by the way. Let's look at these five passages. First of all, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I love the book of Ecclesiastes, mainly because when I first started going to teach at uh, Cape Bernay Bible School many years ago, uh, they said, oh, we want you to teach on a book that's not very popular, a book that's not very really been done at Cape Bernay. I know, you can have Ecclesiastes. I thought, thank you very much. Because I didn't know how to make head or tail of Ecclesiastes. But they'd given it to me, and I had to work on it. And now, I must say, it's one of my favourite books in the Bible. It really is, because it's just so realistic. It's interesting, when the French president, um, uh, Mitterrand, was reaching the end of his life, he was diagnosed with cancer. And the doctor said, this is terminal. You're going to die in a few months. He went to his hometown of Arnac, uh, in, in, in France and, and, and just spent the last few months of his life there. A newspaper reporter from all over the world descended on that little town because Mitterrand was a fascinating guy. 
In the war, he'd been in the resistance, and his hands were not exactly clean. <laughs> he'd done a lot of very dubious things. And later on, when the war had ended and he'd become a politician, he'd known how to cut corners. He knew where all the skeletons were. He knew where the bodies were buried. He had lots of stories that they wanted to winkle out of him before he died. And so he gave them all interviews, but it was very guarded in what he said. And uh, there's only one question, I think, that he answered, just like a shot. And it came one day when one of the reporters said, so, um, having run out of questions to ask him, he said, uh, so what's your favourite book of the Bible? Thinking that Mitterrand would be quite, quite embarrassed because he'd never read the Bible in years. And Mitterrand immediately shot back, Ecclesiastes. <laughs> no question about it. Because Mitterrand was a, a, a tough guy. He was somebody who was shrewd and realistic and pragmatic about life. He knew how tough life could be. And so the book in the Bible that he most respected was one that talked about the hardness of life. I mean, look at this stuff. So I reflected on all this. Yes, it's up there. I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. The writer of Ecclesiastes likes putting little poems into what he writes, so that's why that's in italic there. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. There's no free ride for some people. There's no easy answers in anybody's life. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there's madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Now, of course, the Bible has more to say on this one. The writer of Ecclesiastes is writing at a time long before Jesus. And Jesus is the one who, according to uh, um, the Apostle Peter, Paul, Paul rather, in Timothy, brought life immortality to light through the gospel. When Kohelet was writing several hundred years before that, nobody knew what happened after you died. All they knew was you weren't coming back. So even a living dog was better than a dead lion. They have no further reward, even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Now, why would I use this passage, and who would I use it with? I would use this with somebody who is saying, well, you know, you Christians are completely unrealistic. You believe in the Heavenly Father Christmas, the sugar plum fairy that rings down from above and meets all your needs with a wave of his magic wand, and yet everything's all right. Not at all. The Bible is incredibly realistic. And I think this passage from Ecclesiastes is a good one for showing that Christianity doesn't ignore or minimize the problem of evil. The Bible faces squarely up to what sort of a world it is. It's not just saying, trust in God and everything will be wonderful. It knows the kind of thing we live in. Um, it's not a time for a lecture on Ecclesiastes, but here's one of the slides I use in my lectures, because if you look at the whole book of Ecclesiastes, and I always recommend that people do that, you'll find that Ecclesiastes uses one phrase a lot in the first part of the book, and it's a phrase, it's under the sun. And the idea is we are living under the sun, but above the sun, there's a whole other world. There are things happening there that we don't know anything about. So we don't know everything there is to know about our universe, and therefore we can't know anything about the future, and we can't say whether God's doing it well or badly. 
because we just don't have the equipment to judge. It's as if we're living in a box. And in the box, there are all sorts of random events that happen to us. Ecclesiastes talks about it as that which hurries along. And you remember how in chapter 3, there's that famous poem about time. There's a time for this and a time for that and a time for this and a time for that. And that's all saying life is constantly incredibly varied and we can't judge it for ourselves. But there's a verse at the end of chapter 3 that says, God seeks that which hurries along. God sees every single event of our lives. And so there are some great realities above the sun, outside the box, that shape our life. And Kohelet talks about providence. The fact that God is in charge still of everything that happens in the universe, even when it seems to be out of control. He talks about watchfulness. God sees that which hurries along. He talks about creation. God started it all. This is what God has done. Remember your creator while you're still young. And he talks finally about judgment. Enjoy your life while you're young, young man, he says. But remember, remember all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And he says, if these great realities aren't true, outside the box where we can't see them, then the whole thing makes no sense. Life is just a sick joke. But it ain't like that, because God is there. And so Ecclesiastes 9 is not pessimistic. It's not desperate. But it's facing up to life the way it really is. Oh, the second passage I would look at is Job chapter 42. You could look at earlier bits of Job as well um, if you wanted to. But this is the conclusion of the whole story. Job goes through over 40 chapters just saying, bring God to me. I want to talk to God. If I can talk to him, I'll have a few things to say to him. And uh, God appears. And in the previous couple of chapters, you can read what God's saying to Job. Where were you when I created the world? Do you know how to do this? Do you know how to do that? I can do it. I'm the creator. How can you judge the way I organize things? And Job suddenly realizes how small he is and how big God is. And so Job replied, My Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely, yeah, you're right. I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you will answer me. And, and Job implies, and I was ashamed because I have no answers. I haven't got the qualifications to ask you questions. <coughs> my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I see just how proud, how arrogant I was being to ask questions when I didn't create the world. I don't know how it runs. I don't know anything about it. And uh, I think Job 42 is an important passage to know about because it makes the point that we don't know enough to pass proper judgment. So the Bible doesn't try to give a complete answer to the problem of evil. One of the things it says is, look, there's no way you could understand why God does everything he does. I mean, what happens on a very simple level when you are praying desperately for good weather for the Sunday school picnic and a Christian farmer three miles down the road is praying desperately for rain for his crops because otherwise he goes bust. Who does God listen to? If you watch uh, uh, Bruce Almighty, that, uh, that famous old film where somebody becomes God for a little while, you begin to realize how difficult it is to listen to all the prayers in the world and do the right thing with them. And Bruce fails miserably. Only God can do certain things and do them right. In the third passage uh, it would be Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Because it's important for people to see what the Bible does say about God's care for us. And Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. 
and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Human beings matter. And despite the fact that it, it, it may not seem that way when you see little videos on the internet of, you know, Russian troops uh, walking along a street in, in, in Ukraine and suddenly, whew, massive explosion and a drone has wiped out another five of them or whatever. Life seems cheap. Life seems as if it doesn't matter. That's not the way it says the Bible. God cares about every single human being that lives. You are of more value than any sparrow. And God is not... Um, somebody who's uninterested in his creation. He sees everything that happens, even when a sparrow falls dead off a branch. God knows about what's happening. And so that passage, it seems to me, says very clearly, we're in the hands of a God who loves us and knows all about us. That's a clear Bible claim about the way the world operates. Even if it doesn't always seem that way, there is a God who knows and loves and cares. Then there's John chapter 9. Now that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because this is something that people often think. That if there is trouble in my life, God must be punishing me. God has got it in for me. Maybe God just hates me because of all of the things that have happened through my life. God is just frustrating me. Other people, I look at them, they're doing fine. But me, God's always got it in for me. It always goes wrong. And sometimes they look at other people and think, he must have done something pretty evil for that to happen to him. And that was exactly the way that Jesus' disciples tended to think. As he went along, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus didn't say his parents, he didn't say him, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now be careful, Jesus is not saying, I, the creator, organized it so that this guy would be born blind and I could do a miracle to him today. No, he's not saying that. Because the Bible makes it clear that God does not do evil. Things that, are, that happen in the world uh, that are evil are not God's responsibility. They are, well, we'll talk about uh, where they come from in a moment. But God... The one assurance we have is that God can work through the evil to bring out good. So God never planned for this man to be born blind. God does not plan diseases that are congenital. He does not plan stillbirths. He does not plan cancers. But when this happens in a world that has got spiraled out of where it ought to be, Nonetheless, God is somehow able in an amazing way to bring his purposes out of the evil. And so John 9, it seems to me, is an important passage because it just underlines this point. God doesn't make evil things happen, but he works through them to bring good anyway. And what Jesus was saying about the man here was, listen, God allowed him to live to this point with this crippling disability he's had because God wants to open up new horizons for him and just show his glory in this man's life. Then the final passage I think that's important, although there are so many others you could use, or Second Corinthians about, you know, we're living in a tent down here and this isn't a real uh, future that God's got designed for us. There are lots of passages you could use, but the fifth one I would use personally would be Romans chapter 8 <laughs> because this is such an important one. We saw it last week, this is the same slide. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. One of these days, we will be in eternity in glory. 
We'll see the fulfillment of everything. All of those longings and desires that God has planted in their lives that can't be fully satisfied here in this life. And we'll be in a place where suddenly it all makes sense and it all fits together. For the creation waits, he says, in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We live in a world of decay, a world in which nothing lasts, a world in which you put a piece of cheese in the fridge and five years later it looks very interesting indeed. You know? Things are constantly decaying. Your body is wearing out. You're only here on a temporary stay. And that's not the way the world is supposed to be. God has made us to be eternal beings. And in us there's this urge for eternity, for something to last. We want to go on forever. And that's because God has planted eternity in our hearts, as Ecclesiastes puts it. Because we're, we know we're made to be eternal beings. And one of these days, the whole of creation will be right. At the moment, it's not. It's working, but it's not working properly. I told a story last week, you might remember, about an old car of mine, a Morris Ital, which the REC said it's got to go straight in the garage right now. And I know the garage is just over the hill, just down there, but you're not driving it down there because if you drive that car down, every time the wheels go around, this car is hurting itself a little bit more. And that's the trouble. The world is going round and round. All of the natural system is still working, but it's hurting itself. It's not the way it was ever designed to be. And so Romans 8 goes on. The whole creation has been groaning like a woman in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we ourselves, even the Christians who've got the first fruit of the Spirit, we groan inwardly because we are waiting eagerly for our adoption to sonship to coming into the fullness of what God has to give us, the redemption of our bodies. And in this hope, he says, we were saved. So this passage, it seems to me, although it's a difficult passage, and you might have to quite while explaining it to people, it's really saying this. We've yet to see the universe as God all intended it should be. But one of these days, we will. And that's the hope that keeps moving Christians forward. They know Jesus now in their lives, day by day, as a living presence, a companion, a, a friend, a helper, a challenger, a strengthener, all of those things. And because they know that, they know that the one who's kept his promises in their life here and now is going to take them straight through to that eternal future that's promised as well. Three good reasons. Sorry, this is a bit urban hipster, this picture, but hey, can't remember a thing, thing one I could find. And um, it's free. And, uh, if you're trying to give three good reasons to sum up what Christians believe about God, or to at least start you in an explanation of some of this stuff, what will you do? Well, you can choose your own three reasons, really, but I'll tell you what I would go for. And I find it easy to remember because I've thought of phrases that start with an F. <laughs> First thing is, if people are saying, how can there be evil and sorrow in a world created by a good God? The first argument I would use is free humans. The fact that God has given us the freedom to live our lives in the way we choose. And if we want to commit suicide, if we want to smoke ourselves to death, if we want to develop a heroin habit or something like that, we can do that. God doesn't step in and say, oh no, I didn't mean that, and stop us. And our freedom means we can inflict incredible misery on other people. When we think, I'm the ruler of a country, I'm going to invade the country next door. <laughs> As Putin did, God didn't step in and stop him. 
and the result is untold misery in Ukraine. And so human freedom is a major cause of the trouble in the world. And freedom is a great gift from God. It's a tremendous thing that he's given us. We're able to be creative. We're able to do all sorts of things that we wouldn't be able to if we were just robots. There's colour, there's imagination, there's choice in life. It's an incredible, unnervingly, stupendously generous gift. And yet it can be so misused. Human freedom, that's the first thing. Second, fixed laws. <laughs> As we said last week, God has made us a universe you can rely on. When you conduct a scientific experiment, you get the same result every time, if you've done it properly. And that's the way that we've been able to find out about God's universe. The way we've been able to, to take technology forward to the point where, you know, your iPhone could do amazing things. If you look back at films made even 20 years ago and the kind of phones they were using then and the limited functions they had, it's, 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 it's pathetic compared to what's happening now. And it's all because we're able to explore God's world and find out more and more about it, the way it fits together and so create things uh, just as he created uh, the world to start with. And that means that there are fixed laws which we can't come up against, which if we come up against, uh, we, we can't get round. When God sees two cars speeding towards one another on the motorway, one of them driving on the wrong carriageway, he's not going to step in and stop it. And say, right, we'll freeze frame for five minutes. You can't do that. The universe must run by its natural laws. And so there's hurt and there is pain simply because we run up against those natural laws. And often it's human beings who bring those situations about by driving like down in the wrong lane of a motorway or something like that. And the third thing I would say is about the... Romans 8 chapter. We're living in a frustrated world. The whole of creation was subjected to frustration. When human beings sinned, something broke in the universe. The whole mainspring of creation was shattered. And so everything still works, but it does not work right. And because we're living in the chaos of that, Christians' lives, just like anybody else's lives, can be... Uh, betrayed and distorted in the way that Ecclesiastes chapter 9 talks about. It's not the way that God planned for it to be, but that's why it is. And I would say, this is why I could believe in a world like this that there can still be a good good behind it. And what's more, I know him. Can I tell you a bit about him? <laughs> but the final thing I want to say then is just work on your return. How do you turn it round? Because you see, you won't much of a table tennis player if you just stand there and let the other person fire at you all the time. One of the most important skills you must develop, they tell me, is knowing how to return any shot. I say they tell me because I grew up in a kind of little brethren church where table tennis was one of the works of the devil. You didn't do it because if you were any good at table tennis, that meant you hadn't spent enough time in studying the Bible. So when I started to go into youth camps and conferences and places where, you know, they played table tennis every week at the youth club, I was hammered every time. And I'm still not that good. So, um, yeah, I can just about match Aiden once in five matches, but, but that's about it. Um, yeah, I'm not that good at table tennis. But one of the most important things is knowing how to return the shots. And it's the same thing with Christians. I've seen so many conversations with... Uh, the non-Christian says to the Christian, so tell me how you can be a God of, 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 of love in a world like this. And the, uh, uh, the Christian gives an answer. And the non-Christian goes, hmm, okay, that makes sense. So tell me, how do you know that Jesus Christ really lived? And the Christian gives the answer. Yeah, okay. But how can you trust the Bible? And the Christian gives the answer. And the non-Christian says, hmm, that's all right. Looks at his watch. Oh, good grief, I've got to go. <laughs> and what's happened? Attack, answer, attack, answer, attack, answer. But it's not taking it forward in any way. 
And knowing how to return is important. So when somebody asks you a question like that, don't just give your answer and then wait for them to come up with some other idea they've got. Answer in such a way that you get on the offensive. You're asking them something. Because it's when they are asking themselves, yes, what do I think about this? That you, you, you can get somewhere. Now, the way you come out of this question uh, into uh, asking the sort of thing that you want to ask about them and probing them a little bit can be almost anything. I've put down three possibilities here, one of which would be my usual one. I won't tell you which one it is because it's important that you develop your own. But it's good to think, how would I give my answer and then come back? And that you could say something like this. Okay, so... Um, you, if the world is completely accidental and meaningless, I'm saying it's not, you know, I'm saying that there is a God who is, is, is the creator of everything and therefore the world makes sense. But if you think the world is accidental and meaningless, uh, why carry on? What's the point in living? What's life really for? And at that point you're asking them to say, well, this is what I, is most important to me, this is what's precious to me. And it's, it's possible for you to gently say, well, you know, is that really big enough? <laughs> is that enough? Could there be more in life that you're missing? And you've come back. Or another one. Okay, you don't believe in God. So, how would you account for the signs of order and design that science are talking about? Give them a chance to think. Yeah, how would I do that? If it is true that the whole of human life is just the most incredible chance, it seems vanishingly unlikely that it would just have happened, then what explanation do I have? You could come up with the multiverse, which is one that we haven't covered, but never mind. Um, that's not a very good answer. And third, uh, you believe in God, but not the one I'm talking about, which is what some people say. Oh, I, mean, I, mean, I believe there is somebody there, yeah, somewhere, but not the kind of God you're talking about. Okay, so what sort of God can you believe in? And she starts describing, or she starts describing the sort of God that I believe might well exist. You're able to say, well, does that fit the, 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 the bill? Would that kind of God love us like the biblical God, uh, God does? Would that kind of God create this kind of a universe? Would that kind of God uh, end up with a universe in which human beings are free agents and not robots? And all sorts of questions you can ask. But you might not want to use any of those. This is just the way my mind works. You might want to come back in a completely different way. But I think it's important to think, if I am answering this question, not only how do I answer it, but also where do I go next? Because the ultimate aim of this whole thing, let's face it, is not to score points. It's not to win arguments. It's to introduce people to the reality of the Lord Jesus. And I think if we do a little bit of homework on this question, then that's the way uh, we can do it. So, so, two weeks, three weeks from now, whatever it is, last Sunday in the month, we will be looking at the next question, which is, do all religions lead to God? And that's a big one, isn't it? I've got uh, a woman in Plymouth that I'm writing to right now who's got a, a, a co-worker who said, I'm a pagan. I don't believe anything you believe. And uh, we need to sort out how you talk about that. I talk to people like that. Or people who are Muslims. Or people who are Hindus. People who are Jews. What do you actually say? Or more likely, the people who don't believe anything, but they can see there are all sorts of religious minorities. And of course, tolerance is a big thing. So how can you Christians be so arrogant to say you have the only truth? Well, that's where we're going next time. But in the meantime, if you get a chance, have a look at those Bible passages. Internalize them a little bit. Work out your own three points, maybe the three that I've suggested or some others that make more sense to you. And get yourself ready with that question. And then we'll move on to the next one next time. Steve, I think it's back to you.